Um, so welcome, whether you are, uh, have been coming here since well before I got here, or this is your first Sunday, uh, welcome here to Faith Community Bible Church. Um, yeah. We're in uh, John, as uh, we just heard read from Scripture, we're in John chapter 7. Uh, as we, uh, we, we took a break from, the, um, from our series on John for the past two weeks, and we're back here. Um, our son, before we get into the, the text itself, our son, as some of you know, is, is right now at Army training, boot camp. And uh, at, at each stage of training, uh, there, is a, uh, uh, there, there are different gates that the recruits have to pass through that are pass-fail. You have to get through this and, uh, to become a soldier, and, and at each one of these gates, some of the um, soldiers are eliminated. Uh, some of them wash back, get another opportunity to try to pass that gate. Some of them uh, quit on their own. Uh, back in pilot training, we used to call that uh, SIE, self-induced elimination, because um, you had to have an acronym, right? Uh, and, uh, and, but at that point, they give up their dreams to be a soldier in the U.S. Army. Uh, one of the gates that they do relatively early on is something called the Confidence uh, Tower. It's a 40-foot uh, wooden structure that they climb up and then they rappel down on, on ropes. And uh, since we have a hard time oftentimes uh, uh, or sort of estimating what heights are, 40 feet is roughly the height of our steeple. Um, and uh, uh, many people, including me, uh, a pilot, yes, have problems with heights. Uh, and uh, I think it's healthy. Uh, in 40 feet, it takes about a second and a half to fall off of 40 feet. Your body accelerates to 35 miles an hour, and the ground doesn't. And, and, and so I think it's a healthy fear. But so to overcome this fear, the, the recruits are given this instruction on the ropes and the harnesses and the, and the carabiners and, and, and the, the methods of, of using them. And, um, it, and the purpose of that is not just to train them how to do this safely, but to give them confidence in that equipment and in, in those procedures. And, and they'll start off, uh, uh, b before they have to commit to going over the edge, they'll start off actually just tying those ropes off to logs and pushing back with the strength of their own, their, their own legs. And then they'll go on these, these smaller uh, structures that have got pretty light inclines and then ones with a little bit steeper inclines before they climb up onto the tower. And each one of these steps, again, is to reinforce their confidence and the evidence before them that these things work. And uh, when they get up to the top of that 40-foot tower, though, they have to look down. And, uh, and, and, and so their pulse might quicken if, if they're smart. Uh, their, their, their breaths might get a little bit shallow or maybe deeper. Their hands start to sweat un, under the gloves. And then they clip in, and they look down, and they get asked to commit to go over uh, the edge. And it's a long way down, and some of them will never go any further. Um, the fact that the harness is secured, that the rope has a breaking strength of 6,100 pounds, uh, that, that there are safeguards in there to make sure that they won't follow, doesn't matter to them. They look down, and their brain says, you are going to die. It's a long way to fall. I can't commit to this. And contrary to the things we may have heard or thought about drill sergeants is that while they will encourage them and they will try to coax them to go over that edge to commit to trusting those ropes and their buddy that's belaying, they will not throw them over. Um, they expect that that recruit will put personal faith 
really, in, in that evidence and will commit to going over the edge. And whether they do or not will change the course of their life forever. In our text today, we see that other people are pro- provided a lot of evidence, and they're asked to commit to it, um, and some of them will and some of them won't. They'll come up with different answers, and some of them will not be able to commit to this most important question in all of human history is, is Jesus the Christ? And so that's our sermon in a nutshell today, is, is to ask ourselves, just as the, as the crowd had to do, can we marvel, uh, can, can we consider, can we commit to, to, the, to the evidence that demands a verdict? Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? The setting for the text today is, uh, as, as Pastor Michael taught last week, the Feast of Booths. He was talking about Psalm 81, which takes place in, in that same feast. Um, it is uh, one that commemorates or, or causes Israel to remember their time uh, wandering in the wilderness, and even more importantly, uh, God's uh, provision, his, his leadership, his, his guidance, his care, his mercy for them in the wilderness. He set this, God, God set this feast to coincide with the harvest of olives and grapes. So it was a time of celebration, of plenty, of celebrating God's abundance. And in the middle of this feast in Jerusalem at, at this time, uh, Jesus is in the temple and he is teaching. And his teaching causes a stir. Earlier in the chapter, we see in, in verses 15 and 16 that the people of Jerusalem are marveling over his, his teaching, his authority, and they're amazed that it is coming from a person to, as far as they know, has never had formal teaching under the religious leaders. And as they marvel, they are also confused. They don't know what to make of Jesus. They're having a hard time understanding his, his teachings, uh, his, his hard time taking in the signs that he is doing and considering the evidence and uh, a matter of fact, in verse 20, we see that they think that he is demon-possessed because he is making this claim that people are seeking to kill him. But then just five verses later, at the beginning of today's uh, text, we read, some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So there's confusion, there's division already. And it's not just trying to understand what Jesus is teaching but who he is, what is going on around this man. He has been doing and saying things that if he is not who he says he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the one promised by, by uh, prophecy, if he's not that person, then what he is saying and doing is a sin, and it demands punishment by death, by the law, for the sins of, of heresy and blasphemy. And yet, while the authorities had been seeking to arrest him, to have him killed, they apparently now are leaving him alone. And in the absence of information, as happens to us today as well, uh, the people try to fill in meaning. And so as we continue in verse 26, it says, and the crowd is speaking, they say, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
Again, hear this marveling and confusion, but also hear the urgency of their conversation. They're trying to figure out who he is and what this, this means uh, for them. And, and they're having these conversations that, again, just a few verses earlier in this chapter, we see that they were afraid to have uh, because of what might happen uh, to them. But, but now this, this conversation is, is being forced upon them, and they're having a difficulty coming up with an answer. And some of this is because they're looking at stuff that's not true. They've got true evidence before them. They have the testimony of John the Baptist, of of the scriptures, of God himself speaking, this is my son. They they have the evidence of Jesus' signs and, and teachings and his miracles. But they also have false evidence, like this idea that no one will know from where this, the Messiah comes. A matter of fact, in a few verses later, they're going to con- contradict themselves because the Scripture does tell them that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Friends, the evidence of Jesus being the Christ demands a verdict. So Josh McDowell said. But make sure you're looking at the right evidence. Make sure you're looking at what is true, what God has made. In New Hampshire, this time of year, there's some pretty good evidence. What God is doing, what God has said, not what man has done and said and is doing. And this is a strong warning to teachers, right? We need to be careful to make sure that what we are teaching is true, that we are presenting the true evidence. And so we call you to help us out by testing what you hear, and especially what you hear from this pulpit. Think of the way that the, the church of Berea was, was commended for, for, for being noble, it said, because they not only received the word eager, eagerly, but they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So keep us honest on that. Jesus sees this controversy going on, and he doesn't calm it down. He, he raises the stakes as we see throughout the Gospel of John. Verse 28 says, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. He's saying, You know me, you know where I come from, but you really don't know me because you really don't know him, God, who sent me. Those are fighting words. And they're not new words. He said them uh, before, right? He is is repeating these claims that he is from God and you do not know God. So it makes, it's not a surprise that we read in verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. And nobody sought to arrest Jesus because he was a nice man. They didn't try to arrest him because he was teaching people to love one another, or even because he commanded people to love God. Jesus did say, right, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. But he also said, love your neighbor as, as yourself. But that's not what turned people against him. What turned people against him was that he said, I am the Lord God, 
you shall love. And, and by uh, the way that you're to love your neighbor is the way that I love you. And it's by that standard that the world will know whether you are my disciples or not, if you know God or not, if you are children of God or children of the world and its prince. That's what got Jesus in trouble with the leaders. And all of this hinges on the question, is Jesus the Christ? If he's not, none of this matters to the crowd and none of this matters to us. Right? The Pharisees would be right to have Jesus arrested for the sin, the crime of blasphemy. But if Jesus is the Christ, then there's nothing that matters more. And praise be to God that many people, when they see this evidence, they need no more, and they come to that conclusion. We read in verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? For them, the evidence is clear and convincing and compelling that they need nothing more. They believe in him. And this, the people believing in him, speaking about him, and we assume, assume turning to follow Jesus is what really gets stuck into the craws of the religious leaders. It says in verse 32, where the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus didn't back down again. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me. You will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Again, he's re repeating this claim of divinity and of exclusivity. That he knows the root that lies before him. He knows about the garden. Right? He knows about the court. He knows about the cross. He knows about the tomb. And he knows his destination through all of that is the throne. And he knows that those who reject him are barred from joining him. And yet the people are unable to understand because their minds are fixed on the things of this world instead of the things of God. And so this next part of the text uh, ends with people confused, uh, continuing to marvel over the same question that stands before each of us today. Is Jesus the Christ? See, some are convinced to believe in him, yet others are convinced to reject him, and others are still unsure. They need more evidence, and Jesus, a few days later, we, we read, gives them more to, uh, to consider. It says, in, 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 starting at verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, all of this is happening during the Feast of Booths. And it's a reminder of God's sovereignty and his mercy and his loving kindness in the wilderness. And last week when Pastor Michael was teaching on Psalm 81, he explained that a key moment in this is, is when uh, God provides streams of living waters that pour out of a rock in the wilderness. And, and we're told that there's two names in the Hebrew for, for that area. One, one is, is Masa. And the other is Meribah. 
They're Hebrew words for testing and quarreling. Jesus' words must be heard in the context of those words. Because just as at Masa, the place of testing, God is providing water in the wilderness. Not spiritual water for our spiritual bodies, for our spirit, I mean, not, not physical water for our physical bodies, for our, our physical existence, right? But the spiritual living water that sustains our souls into eternity in our spiritual wilderness that we're wandering in now. And then just as, as God tested hearts and the people of Israel had tested, sinfully had tested God at Massa, God is now testing hearts. And the people are sinfully testing God and his patience in Jerusalem today. And just as the people quarreled at Meribah, refusing to be unified, despite the clear evidence of God's existence, of his power, of his love, his kindness, his mercy, his provision. They're quarreling again. They're refusing to be united in belief in Jesus, even in the presence of clear evidence that he is indeed the promised Christ. And so in verse 40, we see, when they heard these words, some people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said, uh, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. The Apostle Paul would later write to the Ephesians that, that all things would be united in Christ. Right? Things in heaven and things on earth. But this is before the fullness of that time, of that promise. And before that promise is made true, Jesus promises something else, that he has come not to give peace on earth. He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. The claims of Christ that he is God himself, that he is the way, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. Even the name of Jesus himself, all these things are offensive, repugnant to the world, partly because of the evidence of creation, history, witness, uh, scripture itself require each person to answer this binary yes or no question. Is Jesus the Christ or not? There's no room for middle ground. There is no room for compromise. Many of you know this quote from C.S. Lewis who wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
And so while we can compromise on many issues, even many important ones, there is no compromise to the question as to whether Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, or not. We have to commit to an answer, and that answer is going to cause division. And we can see that division even among the leaders. In verse 45, the officers come back. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The, answers, the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The officers, your translation may say temple guards, uh, would have been Levites, members of the tribe of Levi. They're the ones entrusted with leading the temple operation, the, the worship in the temple. And unlike the other tribes, they have no ancestral lands. Uh, they were completely dependent on the tithes and offerings of the temple. So for these Levites to refuse to carry out their leader's orders came at great personal risk. Right? For them to be thrown out of the temple, which is a very real consequence, it would have been disastrous. It's not because they didn't have the opportunity to arrest Jesus. He is right there. And there are people in the crowd who apparently believe that he should be arrested. But apparently Jesus' words were so powerful that the guards could not bring themselves to carry out those orders. I was talking with some men this week and just thinking of what that looked like, of these guys sort of muscling their way through the crowd, and as they got closer, they start to hear what Jesus is saying, and as it starts to sink into them, they sort of look at each other, I, I'm, I'm not doing it, or, you know, and, and, and so they come back uh, empty-handed. That decision, that, that decision to come back empty-handed, though, was a commitment, right? It's a commitment that comes, as, as Pastor Don taught uh, two weeks ago, with a cost. The Pharisees are incensed. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, there is an aspect of John's writing uh, that theologians, that, that, that students of, of John's gospel specifically uh, call John's irony. Um, it, it, it happens throughout his gospel, and he often uses these ironic uh, circumstances without ever explaining them, expecting the reader to get the joke. And this is one of the instances. The Pharisees have accused the officers of being deceived and the crowd of being ignorant of the law when it is they themselves who are deceived and ignorant of the law. And it's one of their own people, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who delivers the punchline. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone before the, uh, to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Uh, we can almost envision Nicodemus doing, uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, Rich Planchet actually brought this up during Bible study. Yeah. Uh, uh, fellas, speaking about the law, uh, would you look at this? Other Pharisees don't get the irony, and, and, and maybe it's they do, and they're, and they're afraid, or they're angry at being caught. But one way or the other, they talk themselves into a further tra tra trap in this last verse. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And again, John doesn't explain this irony. He expects us to understand it. And again, as, as Rich pointed out, they're absolutely right. No prophet comes from Galilee. 
except for Jonah and Hosea and Nahum and Elijah and Elisha. But other than that, no prophet comes from Galilee. There's actually a couple others possible. So while the Pharisees are wrong about Jesus, you can't say they aren't committed to being wrong about him. D.A. Carson wrote, The religious authorities boast that they have not been duped. Their very boasting is precisely what has duped them. In fact, their boasting has not only duped them, but condemned them. Jesus later says to the Pharisees, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But because you say you can see, your guilt remains. This question, is Jesus the Christ, is still of utmost importance today. The evidence has been recorded in the Scriptures. It's been preserved, not just in the Christian Scriptures, but in the writings of so many others. And not just Jewish sources like Josephus and the Babylonian Talmud. It's been preserved in the writings of Roman pagans. right? Uh, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, the Greek satirist Lucian. They all testify to Jesus' existence as a historical figure, to his claim on being the Christ, to his crucifixion, at the hands of the Romans, his miracles, and perhaps even his resurrection. The arguments about the authenticity of the gospel and the New Testaments as historical texts are more convincing than those for any other ancient Greek writings. And every year, it seems, there is more archaeological and textual evidence And that all this evidence demands a verdict from each one of us. Is Jesus the Christ? And and perhaps you don't yet believe this to be so. And if you're in that camp, of course, I want you to reconsider. That's what I'm up here for. If Jesus is not who he claims to be, you don't have anything to lose by, by looking at the evidence again. But just like being on top of that confidence tower... All we can do is is urge you, uh, convince you, persuade you. We can't throw you. And Jesus isn't going to throw you over. We we want you to consider putting your trust in the evidence, not in ropes and and carabiners and and, 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 uh, other things made by by humans, but in the sovereign, powerful, merciful, all-loving God, that kind God of the universe. He's calling you to take that step, not over an edge into gravity, but into his arms. So marvel. Maybe start by marveling why you are here. Not just existentially, although that's a good place to start, right? Marvel at creation, at the majesty of creation, the grandeur, the immensity, and also the intricacy, the delicacy the ingenuity of creation, this world and all that is in it. What would cause the formation of stars and planets like we've been seeing through this new telescope and the vastness of the universe and also the, the inner workings of mitochondria and DNA? What would cause all that in a world where our best science tells us that the second law of thermodynamics says that everything works towards entropy and chaos? 
Beyond that, Marvel, why are you here in this building today? What has drawn you here? What has drawn all these people around you here today? What has convinced so many, even those who are not yet convinced of Jesus' claims to be the Christ and the Son of God, what has drawn people to say, there is something about this man who lived 2,000 years ago that is different, compelling, maybe even supernatural? Something about them that has led people to leave homes and livelihoods and lands and loved ones and even their, forfeit their lives to follow him. Is, is a lack of intelligence or, or other options? Then marvel at what is leading a highly intelligent couple. One, a software test engineer. The other, a registered, registered nurse, to be willing to leave what the world calls success, cash in their savings, sell their house, leave their home, all to follow the call of Jesus to bring his gospel to the urban poor in another state. Marvel. Is Jesus really the Christ? Look at the other evidence before you, the historicity of the scriptures and the man Jesus, a fulfilled prophecy, revolutionary teaching, signs and miracles, and change lives. If you haven't seen change lives, just meet the person next to you. There's a lot of changed lives here. Consider the evidence of creation and the intentionality of its design, the evidence for a creator, the evidence for the sin in this world that separates us from such a perfect, good, loving God and consider there's got to be a need for forgiveness for that sin, salvation from those sins. Consider the evidence of your own life that even as some voices may be trying to convince you that you're a pretty good person, you're certainly not as bad as others. Pretty smart and capable as well, maybe. That deep down you know that there are things that you have done things that you think, things that you haven't done, haven't said, or have said. We call this sin, right? They, they, that are wrong. That they can't hold up to the scrutiny of the pure holiness, pure goodness, pure love, per, pure perfection to which we are called. Consider that if this is true, and it is, Right? That unless you are forgiven, there must be a penalty. And that that penalty is one that is due because of who we have sinned against. And since it's against the only true God, right, that only that true God would be the one able to grant forgiveness. Consider the evidence from Scripture that Jesus is not a way that God has chosen, chosen to provide that forgiveness, but the way. And because he is the only one who can offer that forgiveness and salvation. Consider the evidence supporting his claims to be the Christ, the Son of God, and his call for each of us to not just to believe in him, but to follow him. Consider, as the crowd did, could Jesus be the Christ? And if you can't yet commit, I just ask you to do what Nicodemus did. Ask yourself, what more evidence 
do I need? What is holding you back from committing, in and, uh, committing to and believing in Jesus? What, what don't you understand? What more do you need to learn or hear or see? How can we help you address those concerns? How can we help you take that step over the edge and into your Creator's loving arms? Because each of us has to commit to the answer to that question, is Jesus the Christ? And that is the, not only among the most important questions we have to answer in this life, it is one that has eternal consequences. Because Scripture says that at one time, we will all have to answer that every one of us is going to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the Pharisees who are committed to say otherwise, right, that every tongue of every nation is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it also tells us that it is our decision, our commitment, our belief that happens in this life that decides whether we will make that confession as forgiven sinners and welcomed into his community for eternity, or if we'll be making that confession as condemned sinners, banished to eternal punishment apart from him. And so please, continue to seek the answer to that question. Is Jesus the Christ? And if you do believe this to be so, let's take a look again at Jesus' words in the in this Scripture. Starting in verse 28, we might ask ourselves, do I know Jesus or do I know of him? He says, you know me and you know where I come from, and yet the people he's speaking to don't know him. You can know Jesus, who he is, and not yet know him as your Savior. Do you know the facts about the Christ or do you know the Christ? There's a difference. Even the demons know about Christ and shudder. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then next look at verse 34 and ask yourself, Am I waiting for Jesus' return? Or am I seeking him and where he is leading me? Jesus calls to us to come. Right? Receive the free gift of salvation. He calls us as we are, but he never leaves us as we are. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then obey his commands. Obey the commands that are found throughout Scripture that say, Seek me. Come to me. Follow me. Ask yourself, where is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and where is he leading me? And then ask, how can we, your church, the people who love you with Christ's love, help you on that journey? And finally, look at his words in verses 37 and 38 where he calls us, right? If Jesus is the Christ, he says, then come to him, right? Drink deeply and then pour out. When Jesus spoke these words originally, he was not glorified. The Spirit had not yet come to those who believed in him. We don't have that excuse. Jesus is glorified. The Spirit has come to those who believe in him. It has been poured out into our lives, and it ought to pour out of 
our lives. If we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then we should be coming to him daily through prayer and his word, drinking in that spirit and then pouring out streams of living water, sharing Jesus' gospel, sharing his blessings, his gifts, his time, his love with one another, fellow believers, and with those who are around us. And we ought to be asking ourselves, am I merely claiming Jesus is the Christ, or am I coming to him, drinking him in, and pouring out the Spirit? And again, as your church family, we want to help equip you to do that. So how can we do that? Friends, Marvel, consider and commit to this question. Is Jesus the Christ? And if you believe it to be true, know him. Seek him. Come to him. Follow him and share him. Amen.